Today's interview marks our 20th episode of the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. The podcast started on a bit of a whim last December, so we could not have imagined the support we have received since then and the incredible people we have been able to interview. We are eager to keep the podcast going, but we need your help to do so. If you've already left a review, thank you very much. If you have not, please do so when you're finished listening to this episode. The podcast is being listened to by people in over 70 countries and by thousands every month, so I know you're out there. We need your support to keep the Progressive Bitcoiner going, so please leave a review. Please share it with friends and family. Your help is very much appreciated. Thank you. There was a good back and forth today, I think, between some um, anti-Bitcoin progressives, and and one of them had said something like, um, who, who I, by the way, I respect on a lot of other matters. We just have this big disagreement about Bitcoin, but uh, I think they, they said something like uh, about how how important cash was, which I, of course I agree with. Um, and about how the monetary system is the, is the elevator and we need cash as like the stairs. And a friend of mine wrote back saying something like, no, 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 Bit- well, Bitcoin's the stairs. Right. And, you know, like, I think this person was like, what a crazy answer, like crypto crazy person. Um, but that's, that's, that's the reality. Like your paper notes that you use as cash those are going to get taken away from us. You'd be naive to think they aren't going to be like by the powers that be, they're going to take them away and all the privacy and freedom that goes with it. So that's the elevator. The thing is the cash is the elevator. So, so what's going to happen when the elevator stops working? It's Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the digital cash that we're going to need. So I think a lot of progressives just get caught at that point. Like they don't understand that Bitcoin is the stairs. They don't think it is part of the architecture conversation at all. And eventually they'll get it that Bitcoin is the stairs and, and it's not just the financial system that's the elevator, but it's it's cash also. So we want this world where we have money that can't discriminate, that's accessible to all, that's private, protects our privacy, all these things. We want to fight surveillance capitalism and control by corporations of all of our stuff. Fine. Well, you're going to need a good tool for that. And it's not going to be a sword. It's going to be a shield. It's going to be Bitcoin. Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast, where we explore the intersection of Bitcoin and progressive issues. I'm your host, Mark Stefani. My guest today is Alex Gladstein. Alex is the Chief Strategy Officer at the Human Rights Foundation. He has also served as the Vice President of Strategy for the Oslo Freedom Forum since 2009. Alex has been the key voice in the Bitcoin space when it comes to how Bitcoin can positively impact those who need it most. He has written extensively on the topic and his articles serve as the cornerstone for those of us trying to spread adoption in this manner. In addition, Alex has co-authored The Little Bitcoin Book and his new book, Check Your Financial Privilege, was published in March of this year. It is always a pleasure hearing Alex's insight and I appreciate you joining me on this episode with Alex Gladstein. Alex Gladstein, thank you so much for joining me on the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. I'm happy to have you. Happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely. You're undoubtedly very busy having just published your book and now gearing up for the Oslo Freedom Festival. So thanks again for your time today. My pleasure. You have been with the Human Rights Foundation now for 15 years. Can you remember the first time that human rights or the plight of others meant something to you? It served as a professional calling? Yeah, I think even when you talk to most human rights activists, they'll say that they got into it by accident. 
this is common, of course, with people whose families uh, become victims of the state. Like most dissidents I know didn't want to become human rights activists. It was something that uh, happened to them. Most, you know, opposition leaders, most political prisoners had a different career. They were, you know, in music or art or some sort of profession like accounting, law. Um, I was talking the other day to uh, the financial director of Alexei Navalny's foundation in Russia, and she was telling me that she worked as the logistics manager at a shoe company. And then she went to a protest in 2012 in Russia and saw cops beat the crap out of people and said, I want to do something different. Um, So I don't think very many people grew up uh, wanting to become a human rights activist. And uh, it's the same with me. I um, was very much uh, shaping my worldview at the time of 9-11 and uh, the war in Iraq. I'm 36. Uh, I was um, kind of a sophomore or junior in high school when 9-11 happened. I uh, was in college, you know, when the Iraq war kind of began and and through its kind of, let's say, uh, you know, 03 to 07 was when it was really on the uh, radar of the American people. It's now completely gone, you know, obviously from that radar and it has been for like a decade. But at that time, I, I just was very interested in basically geopolitics and like, why do we go to the war? Why do we go? Why do we go invade Iraq? So I spent time studying that and um, kind of, again, almost fell into this um, position at the Human Rights Foundation. I just was applying for jobs in 07, got a position there, showed up, um, was definitely interested in the topic, but hadn't thought about a career in it and then really fell in love with the work. So I, I think that it was kind of a, a, a kind of a, 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 you know, by circumstance thing, but very, very happy it happened and, and just keep learning new things every day on the job. So it's been really enriching and had an awesome opportunity to learn from a lot of incredible people. So very, very grateful for, for all the time I've had at HRF for sure. I'm curious to know how the Human Rights Foundation decides which communities, countries, or causes to focus on. Sure. So again, I personally research and write about human rights uh, advocates and violations everywhere, um, whether they be the United States or uh, in Palestine or Iran or anywhere, um, China. Um, The Human Rights Foundation has a very special focus, which I find very helpful from like an organizational point of view. Um, they focus on basically civil liberties in countries that don't have any sort of liberal democratic, uh, governance. So these would be fully or partially authoritarian regimes. So there's about 95 of them and HRF uses internal metrics that include things like free speech, independent judiciary, uh, independent media, you know, labor unions, things like that. So if you have a lot of those things. Um, you, you know, you tend to be more in the sort of, we'll say liberal, liberal camp, um, open society camp. If you lack those things, obviously you're in an authoritarian camp. And then in the middle, it's always difficult. Um, you look at a country like India today, you know, it'd be a cha- it's, it's challenging to sort of say where that would, where that would be Israel, other countries, it's tough, right? There's no like slam dunk, easy answer. Obviously North Korea is an easy answer. And, and so is Switzerland, but th- there's a lot of places <laughs> in the middle that are difficult, but I think my colleagues have done a great job over the years focusing us. Um, so, you know, we focus on these 95 countries. Um, and I think that's important because most of them, you know, these countries are defined by their governance structure where they don't have like lots of nonprofits inside these countries working to check the abuses of the government. It's, it's impossible. 
that very activity is illegal. So most of these countries, you can't have an Amnesty International inside or a Greenpeace or something like that. You can't have a big international labor union or, or if you have it, it's like hugely persecuted and stripped of all of its power. So those kind of organizations are usually not present or, or at least if they are present, they're not healthy um, in, in these dictatorial societies. So that's why kind of they need help. So that's why we kind of focus there, you know, to avoid replication of others' efforts, right? Like there's tons of problems in the United States. There's also 80,000 nonprofits dealing with all kinds of levels of American society. I can donate to EFF who can sue the American government. I could donate to independent media. I could donate to dozens and dozens of awesome human rights groups all, all along the political spectrum. That's just, none of that exists in Saudi Arabia. So it's like, you know, you know, we, we, we try to uh, help, I think, where, where we think we can deploy our resources most effectively. Well, coming up is the Oslo Freedom Forum. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the event and how Bitcoin is being integrated into it. Sure. The conference was envisioned back in 2006 and seven by our founder, a Venezuelan human rights activist named Thor Halverson. And um, I think the, the initial idea was that, hey, the world has you know, these events like the World Economic Forum for Finance and um, at the time, the Clinton Global Initiative for Humanitarian Aid. The world had TED for Ideas and Technology, but it didn't really have like a human rights and civil liberties event at that level. In fact, <laughs> the human rights event was actually, you know, usually organized by the UN by dictators, you know, the sort of Human Rights Council and its convenings were like a mockery of human rights. So, so we were like, why not try to make something entertaining, exciting, engaging that focuses on civil liberties and human rights. Um, with, with our North Star of Ahrefs mission is like the kind of general focus. Um, I would say that the Oslo Freedom Forum is very animated by Ahrefs mission, but it, but it ends up being a little broader. Like it ends up really hitting, you know, most global issues if you look back at the speakers and who we've had and what they've covered. Um, still retains that focus on, on authoritarian societies, but, but, but is has a wider view than I would say, like, let's say our general legal worker, et cetera. It began as a one-time thing. It was supposed to be May, 2009, like a place where the human rights defenders of the 20th century could give lectures to the young folks of, 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 of the 21st century. Um, we had people like Solzhenitsyn, uh, Havel, Elie Wiesel, Paul Giazzo from Tibet, uh, Leila Zana from the Kurdish areas in Turkey, um, Young Chang from China, all, all sort of lined up, right? Um, and we did it, and people were like, "That was great. You should do it again." So, kind of grew from there into something that was more eclectic. And you know, today it's like essentially a workshop for freedom. Like it's like a place where you go to to learn about what's happening. You learn about all the different movements and all the different world regions, and you learn about how you can contribute. Essentially, like what 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 can you offer them? Like what you know, they need help. So we've always had like strong focus on art and technology and mental health, accountability, justice, and reform at the legal level. Uh, so there's a lot of different music performance, how it relates to creative dissent. There's many different sort of tracks at the freedom forum as it's grown more robust. Um, and one of them is financial freedom. And, you know, about five years ago, we started doing workshops between Bitcoin users and, and human rights activists. And that's now with the support of several organizations like, for example, CT, which is a company in Norway, now they've made it possible for us to have this actual um, kind of full-scale freedom, uh, financial freedom track. So there's going to be um, a couple kind of main stage t- topics on the subject. And 
I think, you know, we'll have, for example, um, there's going to be panels and sessions on people's quest for financial freedom and just trying to like lay out why, why money matters in the human rights conversation. So currently I'm planning to have a chat with um, a friend of mine named Mauricio, who's a Venezuelan um, entrepreneur. He has just like an incredible story of how Bitcoin helped his family get out of Venezuela and set up shop in Canada. And he's created a successful business. It's very inspiring. A friend of mine named Roya Mahboub will probably come from Afghanistan to talk about her, her work in the region, which is amazing that she's done all this work using and educating people about Bitcoin, especially women and girls, exclusively, actually women and girls. And uh, another individual named Abu Bakr Nur Khalil, who's a Nigerian uh, developer, um, who's now on Jay-Z and Jack Dorsey's B-Trust board. And he's, he's doing all kinds of amazing things for Bitcoin in Nigeria and West Africa. So I'll get to have a chat with them. We'll have a whole bunch of other high profile people in the Bitcoin space from all over the world. It's going to be great. They're going to get to talk about why Bitcoin is important. We're going to talk about why central bank digital currencies are risky proposition for human rights. We're going to talk about stable coins. Um, we're going to have quite a few things we're discussing. So we're going to have some content on stage. We're going to have uh, some workshops. We're going to have an academy, Bitcoin Academy, where you can go and have a 101 and learn how to set up a wallet, how to back up your seed, how to, if you lose your phone, how to restore your seed on a new phone. We're going to learn how to set up a BTC pay server for your cause on your website. We're going to learn um, the ins and outs of lightning. We'll do some deep dives into privacy. So we'll have like a half day seminar on the last day for that targeting activists and NGOs specifically. We'll even have a conversation about Bitcoin and human rights and the environment um, regarding proof of work, uh, which I think will be really interesting. So we've got Nick Carter and Lynn Alden and Troy Cross and Darren Feinstein for that, which I'm really excited about. And um, they'll be discussing why proof of work matters for, for human rights. What, why does it matter for things like censorship resistance and free speech, which I don't think is discussed kind of enough. So... I think that'll be really neat. So, so we're trying to provide some fresh content to a new audience. The Oslo Freedom Forum is not a Bitcoin conference at all. It's a human rights conference. There's a small percentage of attendees that are very into the Bitcoin stuff that grows every year as, as the two movements kind of, I think, come closer together. But in general, the idea is like, hey, this is an audience of packed full of people who basically are human rights defenders in risky scenarios and have a need for non-state money or they're like people trying to support human rights activists, and it would be good for them to know about the intersection of Bitcoin and human rights. So generally speaking, it's an educational effort, uh, kind of at the highest order. So yeah, that's all going down. So I'm very excited about it. Absolutely. It sounds incredible. Well, getting into Bitcoin, you were initially skeptical of it. What realization or piece of information changed your mind? Yeah, I just, it was weird. I, I, it was kind of fog of ignorance. Um, I, I was exposed repeatedly <laughs> to Bitcoin as if it was some sort of virus, like 2013, 14, 15, 16. I just, and we did stuff with it and it was on my radar. I just wasn't that interested in it. Like we were getting some donations in it, whatever. Um, we did like a fundraiser for it. I thought that was cool, but I just didn't get it. Um, started to become a little more interested end of 2016, early 2017. Um, and, you know, it started to really click for me when I realized that, well, we were presented with this opportunity to have a Bitcoin workshop um, at the Oslo Freedom Forum. 
And that caused me to be curious and start researching, like, what is the connection? And even still, I remember like that, that summer start, I started to follow basically like what was, what had become Bitcoin Twitter, like, let's say early 2017, I started to follow folks and was, was following like Matt O'Dell and Jamison Lop and a few other people and was kind of watching the block size war thing happen and, and watching the, all the craziness of all the ICOs that there was a lot going on that summer. It was insane. Um, and, um, I was kind of watching it out of the corner of my eye. It started to become a bigger thing on my Twitter feed. I started like having a list for it alongside my other interests. And then it just started to become the main thing I was interested in, like by the end of that year. So I think my skepticism was like, I, I just hadn't seen enough to believe that it was relevant for the work we were doing. And then I kind of just made some decisions to invest some time in it. Um, I think I was asked to give a talk maybe in like October of 2017. And I was like, oh shit, I don't know anything about this. <laughs> and I, Andreas Antonopoulos was someone I was following at the time, um, had been following for a while and just started watching all of his videos and the guy just crushes it with education. It's just such a great educator. So really learned from him. I remember reading uh, his internet of money book or listening to it at least. And um, just being in awe of what he was describing. And he continues to be like, just very good at that. I just listened two days ago to his um, BIP 119 breakdown, which I'd really recommend people listen to. It's on his uh, live stream. He does a live stream every month now. Um, it's it's free though, I think. And it's on YouTube and uh, gives like a 40 minute breakdown of what's going on with BIP 119 and speedy trial and user resistant software and all that stuff. Like it's fascinating. So I'd recommend that. But at the time he, he really, he and the others that I had mentioned, um, really helped me understand this thing. Also, I was following Elizabeth Stark at the time as well. So they, they were all talking about how this thing mattered for, for civil liberties, for, for human rights. Um, and I just, I started to shape a worldview based on that. Of course, there was like a ton of like blockchain stuff happening. It was super overwhelming at the time, especially 2018. It like, I remember in 2017, listening to that podcast by Tim Ferriss and Naval and uh, Nick Sabo about, it was, it was supposed to be about, you know, it started about, they talked about Bitcoin obviously, but they ended up going on all kinds of tangents on like stuff like Filecoin or whatever, or stacks, uh, or whatever it was called something else at the time. Um, block, block something. I can't remember, but there were like a lot of other like non-Bitcoin projects. Um, most of them of course have fizzled out by now, but the, the, the point is they, they, they were, you know, very excited about it. And as a human rights activist, so was I. I was like, oh, this is awesome. Zcash, Filecoin, hell yeah, this all seems really cool. It took me some time to sort of parse through why Bitcoin was unique and special. But I think, you know, I spent like a full year doing that and emerged, I think, basically by like spring, summer 2018, I was like, oh, like the Bitcoin thing is the thing that matters. So yeah, a lot of my formative thinking was done in that 2017, 18 period. And yeah, at the time there was very, very little Bitcoin talk in the kind of like wider human rights community. There was a lot of blockchain stuff at the time or, or token, tokenized this or that at the time. And I think what was interesting is what happened is like, basically a lot of people in the humanitarian sectors or human rights sectors, they got kind of like fooled by this token blockchain-y narrative and then it, it ended up not doing anything 
So then it turned them off to the whole idea set. So instead of just focusing on Bitcoin um, as a new kind of money that would be very helpful for human rights activists, a lot of people, especially in the human rights community, don't like money. They, they associate it with profit and with rent-seeking and you know unbridled capitalism and stuff like that. So, so I think that I, I encountered a lot of people in the space in 2017 and 18 who were like, Oh, I love blockchain, but you know, it's more than just the m- money. You know, I, I really want to focus on the use cases that aren't the money. And this always <laughs> struck me as really strange, basically. Um, because when you think about it at a deeper level, it's all about the money. You know, money is absolutely the foundation for all human rights and, and political interactions that we have as humans. It's like right. it shapes all all of our global behaviors. And and yet people I think they just viewed it as a way to get rich and they didn't understand the the profound impact it would have on the world. But anyway, that was sad because you had kind of a whole generation of people. And I mean, I don't know if we've ever gotten to the, to the mainstream, you know, moment that we were at, at the end of 2017, early 2018. Like if, if anyone was remembers 20 Thanksgiving, 2017, I mean, I'm not sure. And you look at Google searches and stuff like that. I mean, I know there's, we probably exceeded it last spring. Right. Um, but man, like everybody was talking about Bitcoin and, and blockchain and cryptocurrency in, you know, November and December of 2017, it was insane. Um, like to the extent that I, like, at least with my friends and family, like never happened again. Like that was it. That was like the peak. And then so many people got burned by investing in altcoins or, you know, private block private permissioned blockchain projects in the humanitarian and corporate sectors that that delivered no value whatsoever so you know that was part of bitcoin's journey was that a lot of people who may have found it valuable at the time had they had the right teachers or had the right resources you know they got kind of like uh, thrown off the course let's say thrown off the scent so it was tough to 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 integrate bitcoin into what we were doing because of that you know but I just did it slowly and, and carefully. And, um, you know, I view it as a voluntary phenomenon. So I really wanted to be organic. And, and I spent most of that time interviewing human rights activists about money and, and, and found these amazing stories and learned just more about the relationship globally of, of money and human rights. Um, you know, let's say pre-Bitcoin, just kind of in the legacy system, how it worked, how it repressed people, how it stole from people, how it kept them down, how it orchestrated and cut up society into different classes and, 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 and castes. Um, and, you know, slowly we started um, doing a little more. Like I remember 2019 was a big year. We had a couple panels at the Oslo Freedom Forum that spring. I remember we had Peter McCormick come out. We did a panel with some Bitcoin users from like, I think Nigeria and Iran um, in the Philippines. Um, it was, it was really cool. And we, we had, um, this idea to do a book project. Uh, so some of us went to, uh, a house in the Bay area for a week and we wrote the little Bitcoin book that summer, um, with, with Jimmy song and, and Elena Vranova and Lily Lou and a few others. It was cool. Um, it was great experience, amazing experience, really, really, really unique thing. And, um, that was quite formative. And one of, uh, one of HRF's board members was with us on that, on that journey. And, um, you know, I think our, our, our board 
and executive team started getting a little more interested in it. Uh, obviously it's treated us well from like a, people have donated a lot of Bitcoin to us and we, we, you know, that's been great for us. We've been able to deploy that. We've been able to save some of it. And, you know, we just kept chipping away a little bit. Like we had a lot of plans for 2020 that obviously got put on ice. Um, so a lot, everything was, you know, kind of done virtually, but, you know, by the time 2021 came around, we had our big event. Uh, it couldn't be in Norway for like the travel restriction reasons. So it was in Miami, uh, last October. And yeah, we had kind of like a full kind of side event happening, a Bitcoin Academy running at the same time as the main event. And it was, it was, it was great. People really enjoyed it. But one of the things I felt was that it should be a little more integrated into the whole. So that's what we're going to try next month. We'll see how it goes. Um, but, you know, we also started the Bitcoin development fund. That's been amazing. We had a big announcement today. So we're up past, I don't know, you have to look at the exchange rates, but Basically, we've given away more than $1.2 million in Bitcoin or and in dollars over the last two years um, to more than three dozen projects around the world. That's been a really fun thing that I think's made a big difference. Um, so we want to keep working on that and we'll have quarterly gifts. And I've also just been able to do a lot of, you know, a lot of education and in the space, I've been able to give a lot of talks and produce a lot of cool content and appear on a lot of shows like this. So uh, very grateful because, um, yeah, I think in 10 years, we'll look back and, and say, I wish I had told more people about Bitcoin, basically, I think is <laughs> the one regret we'll all have, regardless of uh, how much education we do. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely been like many different um, kind of eras and phases uh, for me, but uh, the road from skeptic to advocate um, was not straightforward and took many years, I think is the, is the short way to answer that very long you know, explanation. Getting into a bit more of the granular questions here, you've described voting rights as the, quote, cherry on top of the democratic process. Rather, it is the base layer of a codified right to freedom of speech and assembly, etc., that is more the foundational layer of democracy, not necessarily voting, as you've said. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there is a parallel to Bitcoin in the sense that it is guaranteeing specific rights at a, at a base layer, and then we build on that rather than, say, rule by majority at a base layer? Interesting. Yeah. I mean, again, the, the framework I would suggest people consider is that elections are a mechanism and <laughs> dictators can use them, right? So all dictators are elected, right? So it's really about how do you ensure it's a free and fair election, right? And that that usually requires other things like separation of powers, auditors, um, independent media, you know, uh, separation of, uh, you know, church and state, separation of military and state, like all kinds of different constructs, vibrant civil society, NGOs that are checking ballots, NGOs that are checking to make sure that candidates aren't put in prison or, you know, illegally disqualified, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's just a lot of substrate that, that goes beneath the, the, you know, voting mechanism or the ballot box. And um, I don't know, I mean, you know, comparing it to Bitcoin is the reason I, I often talk about Bitcoin's governance is similar to sort of what we had envisioned, like, let's say American style democracy is that I do think there are these separations of powers, which are quite interesting different constituencies that matter in Bitcoin. So in much like you have an executive branch and a legislative branch and a judicial branch, 
and then you have the citizens, right? The citizenry, right? Um, these constituencies all inter interact and overlap in different ways in, in the American society. Um, and ultimately they check each other's power, right? Um, so in Bitcoin, it's similar, like they're, they're you know, it, it, <laughs> we look, we have the Bill of Rights in American society and we have the Declaration of Independence and it kind of animates everything else downstream from there. So in Bitcoin, we have the white paper and the code and Satoshi's writings and all that stuff. And it kind of animates everything else downstream from there. Um, but, but governance is actually carried out by miners who, who, you know, obviously, you know, put in the work to create the blocks, which keep the system going and process transactions. Um, to me, that's similar to like the executive branch. And then you have the devs who write and update the code um, who are similar kind of to the legislative branch in a way. Um, and then you, you have kind of like, you know, you basically have economic nodes or full nodes, um, kind of the users who, who in some ways to me are like the, in, you know, Supreme court, like they kind of can, can check the power of the other two branches. Um, and, and then you just kind of have Bitcoin users more broadly, you know, most of whom obviously don't run a node who are just kind of there and there's all kinds of, you know, you could say there's merchants, you could say there's app developers, there's, there's a lot of other constituents, but these three in particular are interesting because, you know, the executive can, the miners can produce whatever blocks they want, but the nodes can reject them, right? If they don't meet the, the rule set, right? And the devs can, can make any, any, you can, you can go and make, it's open source. You can make any, any update to Bitcoin you want, but like, uh, the users aren't going to, they're not going to opt into it um, unless they think that it's advantageous for them, right? So it's interesting that the economic nodes kind of as a kind of weird, ambiguous, uh, silent silent um, force. Um, it's just this looming presence in Bitcoin that, that will protect it. And obviously we saw that in a big way in 2017. And I think we're seeing it play out now today also in a way. I mean, we'll see. Obviously, I think there's just this huge discussion around um, essentially speedy trial and whether that makes sense in Bitcoin, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I, I think that the governance in Bitcoin is really interesting. And I, I think it, it has some similarities to how governance works in a democratic system. Um, I think where some people get tied up is like, and I've had a lot of debates on like, is Bitcoin democratic? Um, it's just a kind of a fun debate. I mean, there is no right answer. Um, you know, to me, I, what I mean by that is that it's 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 money of and for the people as opposed to money of and for central bankers or a small group of people or a tyrant or whatever. Like in the same way that democracy or like rule by the people is is more participatory and inclusive than uh, oligarchy or tyranny. Right. Um, Bitcoin is more all inclusive and you know, representative than central bank fiat money or corporate money. Like it just is, it just is, is more open to everybody. And it's not a tyrannical system where like one person could just change the rules. Right. It's not like, you know, a, a corporate social media network, right. That has censors. Like it's just, that's not really how it works. Um, but I, but I, but I always, you know, we have these like nuanced conversations and, you know, you can argue that, you know, Bitcoin is is controlled by individuals, not necessarily like the mob, like 
you know, you, you can, you can have nuance there too. My react, my, my answer to that would be that liberal democracies actually protect minority rights better than any other governance structure, certainly better than kings and tyrants who, who could change their views on a whim. I mean, yeah, you can find examples of the Ottoman empire protecting Jews or, or, or whatever or Christians, but like, um, you know, that was a very tenuous protection. Whereas in a liberal democracy, these things are usually more enshrined. Um, there's a reason why religious minorities flee from authoritarian countries to open societies. They know they're going to get prejudiced and second class and all these things. They still want to go because <laughs> it's better than being, you know, in the authoritarian regime where they can get wiped out or, or worse, right? Or right. have all their stuff confiscated or, you know, arbitrarily detained or whatever. So I think that the whole it, like Bitcoin and, and democratic thing is interesting. And I would just say that I think in the long term, I think I think Bitcoin's going to be really good for liberal democracies, or at least it'll reform that it'll force reforms in them in a healthy way. Whereas I think Bitcoin's going to be really bad for dictatorships. Like it's going to cause issues, like big, big issues for today's kind of dictatorships, because those dictatorships need things like censorship and confiscation and they need closed capital markets to, to prop up their regimes. And all of a sudden you're throwing into the mix something that's free speech, property rights, and open capital markets, peer-to-peer commerce. Like that's not good for dictators. Now, it may also be not good for certain parts of the U.S. government, let's say, but in general, those vibe, those, those, those things vibe really well with what, what our country was founded on. Um, and, and I think we can definitely survive in that system and thrive in it as an open society. So I, I think that Bitcoin is actually, you know, a lot of like, a lot of people like to say that like, oh, like Bitcoin will, you know, is, is sort of against democracy or whatever. I think what they have in mind is this kind of like mob rule, right? That's when I, when people, when I say, when a lot of people say democracy, I think today they, they, they envision some sort of mob rule, right? Um, and Bitcoin is very anti-mob rule, obviously, it gives you individual rights, but it's also very anti-authoritarian, right? So, you know, to me, I think it, it, it over time, it hopefully will like help balance some of the excesses of democracies, whether they be lavish things our government spends money on, usually in a debt financed way, um, in ways that don't really benefit most people, whether it be the prison industrial complex or forever wars or whatever, um, you know, these things just seem to be unlikely to sustain in a Bitcoin kind of standard. Um, but, but, but a lot of democratic things are going to be very, very, you know, I think sustainable. Um, so we'll see. Whereas I think the entire construct of like Chinese communist party is going to have a real tough time with Bitcoin. So I've asked Matthew Pines this next question, and I'm anxious to get your thoughts as well. We saw the Ukrainian government post a QR code on Twitter uh, requesting Bitcoin and crypto donations. And I don't know how many millions of dollars they're up to with donations. Did we just witness Bitcoin democratize the financing of war? Yeah, I mean, so there's different kinds of war. There's offensive and defensive war. So I I think that's very kind of important um, to, to clarify. Uh, but yeah, I think we just witnessed. We I think we witnessed the beginning of states raising money from allies at the individual and corporate level around the world to come to their aid in a defense. I'm not sure if like the Russian foreign ministry posted a Bitcoin address and said y'all should donate so we can keep attacking Ukraine. 
<laughs> I don't know. I don't know how successful they'd be. I think this was kind of like a, a unique thing. Um, but certainly historical, historic. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it'll be the last time a government raises funds in that way, but I'm not sure. Like, like it's still a sm- very small amount of money compared to the war budget for Ukraine. Right. So sure. I think it's very historic. It's worth, it's noteworthy. Um, it's, it's very interesting to see. Don't think anyone had that on their bingo card for this year. Uh, if you went back a year, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's inevitable. Uh, a- a- anything that like can happen with Bitcoin will happen with Bitcoin in, in my opinion. So, right. Well, given your political science background and self-identified progressive leaning, what do you think is the best way to pitch Bitcoin to liberal voters? Yeah. I mean, I, I, um, we have this website called uh, getbitcoin.org, which I would encourage people to use. It's kind of cool. It's designed to be that resource you leave behind when you get out of a cab or, I don't know, have a conversation with somebody and you don't know what to leave them with. You don't know what one book or one video or one, you know, Bitcoin educational content tends to be, you know, very unique. Each, each piece is very different. So we just wanted to do something quite simple where you would kind of get it and then get it, right? Get Bitcoin and then understand it. Um, so here we focus on four um, attributes of Bitcoin that I think should be important for progressives. Um, so I think, you know, the first one being financial independence, you know, you aren't a slave to the bank, like basically like the bank, like banks and bankers and corporations try to say that their money is the only money that's real. And if you have money outside of the banking system, then it's criminal or fake or this is all just corporate nonsense. Like we should be able to have money and we should be free to commerce with other people if we wish. That's, I think, a very progressive value. Um, second, savings. I mean, people should have the, 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 you know, the right to dignity. They should be able to save for their future of their family and they should be able to do that in a way that's not violatable um, in an arbitrary way by government. That's very tenuous to do through law. It's hard if it gets violated repeatedly around the world. Um, you know that like uh, there's some uh, saying about neoconservatives saying that they're like liberals who are mugged by reality, right? Something like that. So <laughs> I think that um, I'm like a progressive that's been mugged by reality, okay? Because if you believe that the state can be this like benevolent force and can provide FDIC insurance and, you know, unemployment support and entitlements and all these things, you know, that that's certainly a possibility on this earth. Like certain states do do that um, to whatever extent, but you have to also understand that like most states uh, aggressively violate these things, right? Like, you know, the welfare state, and you look at something like Norway, like where you have a good one, is a tiny exception amongst a vast sea of human rights violations. I mean, so you look at the fact that nearly 7 billion people either live under a weak currency or an authoritarian regime. I mean, you know, they don't have these same rights and privileges, right? So I think savings, while, you know, in some ways it kind of gets painted as some sort of right-wing trope, like savings. um, I think that, once you've been mugged by reality, you understand that like people in Nigeria or in Turkey or China, they deserve savings too. Um, and, and they don't have an FDIC and, and they don't have 
somebody in Washington that's going to protect them. They don't. Um, they don't have an FDR. If you, if that's your, if that that's the person you want to like put up and say this, this person, you know, for freedoms and all that, like they have Xi Jinping, they have an MBS, they have a Putin, you know, this is not, these aren't the same. So I think the savings thing is worth fighting about. Like, I think, I think it should be a progressive ideal. Global connectivity is obvious. Like, obviously I think most progressives are against the idea of sanctions against entire countries. And they think we should all be connected and build uh, bridges and not walls and be open to immigration and things like that. So clearly like that element of it, we thought was very powerful. Um, and then neutrality is probably the most progressive part of Bitcoin. It's open to literally anyone. It cannot discriminate. It's non-discriminatory money and, and non-discriminatory technology. It doesn't matter what your gender or amount of wealth is or whatever. You have the same rights as anyone else in the system. So we chose to have those four things, financial independence, savings, global connectivity, and neutrality. And I, I guess those would be the, the themes I would lead with um, in any sort of discussion with, with you know, progressives, let's say. Yeah, absolutely. And I would agree. It was interesting just even a few hours ago at an exchange on Twitter with a gentleman who was not in favor of uh, Bitcoin mining in New York, and he couldn't accept that Bitcoin could be uh, in line with progressive values, saying that he understood some of its benefit toward uh, authoritarian regimes, but didn't think it had any benefit uh, for New Yorkers. I get a lot of that, actually. That's, that's interesting, I would say. Yeah, would would you have any other uh, feedback for a person like this for more of a perhaps a domestic case? Well, I think that people need to know that even what we thought we had in terms of financial privilege is slipping away. Like, okay, so now you've got eight and a half percent inflation in the United States. You've got supply chain issues. You've got crazy, crazy price inflation. Um, so over the coming decade, we're going to see a lot of this stuff, and we're going to see more deplatforming. Okay. We're going to see more censorship. We're going to see more divisiveness. We're going to see more walls. I mean, this is just like, unfortunately, I think kind of the way a lot of a lot of this stuff is trending. And we're going to need a technology that transcends all that stuff. And I think it's great that, that we'll have um, a money system that that can't be walled off or made available for only certain people, or you know, controlled by the bankers you know, against the wishes and concerns of the broader population. We're going to have a plan B. I think that's, I think that's great. And I think it's, it's maybe it's a plan B for now in the West. I know a lot of people in the United States who, who it's their plan A already. It's not, they don't live in Turkey or Ethiopia or whatever. They live in whatever it's LA or Washington. And, and Bitcoin is, is a huge part of how they've been able to survive and thrive. Um, but let's say for most people, obviously it's a plan B. Well, that plan B is going to become your plan A at some point, I think would be my, my, my assertion. And just from a general sense, why would you want to be behind on this thing? Like to me, it's so obvious every day we get, I mean, every day is just like five or six news items that are, that are going to be crazy looking at clippings. Like today, like, like a city in the United States started mining Bitcoin today. Like, okay. Like three years ago, that would have been an absurd headline, completely ridiculous. This morning, it came comes out that Fidelity is going to offer uh, Bitcoin exposure to its 401k clients. Like that would be the craziest news ever three years ago. So every day you get like uh, two, three, four of these things. You got something going on in the Central African Republic. Like what? Like there's always just something happening, right? Now we want to like verify these things, but like 
it's impossible to understate the the velocity here of the progress. Okay. I mean, we're very much in that like 1990s internet era. And like, why would you not want to be part of this thing and help shape it? It's just strange to me. But, you know, I, you know, I guess there's a mindset of somebody of a, of a type of person that says it's going to go away or, you know, they just want it to go away. Eh, this annoying Bitcoin thing. Well, guess what? It's not going away. So it's better if you educate yourself on it and then figure out how to use it to empower the people you care about the most. Bingo. You were certainly most one of the most prominent voices in Bitcoin for human rights. You face a lot of opposition to your views, undoubtedly. Mm-hmm. What keeps you motivated? Well, I think what's interesting is I think there's a undercurrent or maybe even a broader tendency in the Bitcoin community to fight for for your views, right? Very hard. Um, and I, I think that eventually over time, there is no Bitcoin community. I think there's something we all use, like there is no like TCPIP community or whatever, like or email community. It's just something we use. But for now, there is, and 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 very much so. Um, and you know, like the cypherpunks back in the '90s, the, there was a lot of infighting and disputes over you know who was the real cypherpunk or whatever, right? So you get a lot of that these days. But what I am partially heartened with is, like, personally, I I uh, I, I disagree with a lot of people in the Bitcoin space over, for example, like Putin's war in Ukraine, like. I just have a different perspective on it based on 15 years of work with Ukrainian and Russian activists. And no, I don't think it's like NATO's fault that, that this war is happening. And I think that people who think that are wrong, and I I don't see how you could possibly argue that anyone other than Russian soldiers are the ones out there looting and raping and destroying towns. Like, I don't, I don't get it, but um, for whatever reason, people want to want to push a different narrative. Now that's simmered down. Now there's very little talk about Ukraine anymore in the Bitcoin community. I have a piece coming out on it next week um, that, I mean, hopefully maybe can start some dialogue on it. But I think that that's the case in every community. War becomes, people get tired of it. They want to like talk about something else. So it's not just the Bitcoin community. I think everywhere you're generally seeing less, little less, little less, little less every day about what's happening over there. I mean, there was two, three weeks where it was just like, it was very intense because it was like the only thing anybody wanted to talk about. So people were like hugely emotional about it, including me. Um, and I ended up getting into a bunch of disputes with people um, over really serious intellectual disagreements, not like silly things, but like really serious things. And um, what I thought was really interesting was that I got into a lot of kind of nasty disputes with people on Twitter, let's say people who wanted to cancel me or whatever. But it was really, what was really amazing was like a lot of those people I tried to leave the door open for like ongoing discussion. I, I, I only try to block somebody if they are going after me personally, relentlessly, or spamming like some altcoin or whatever, like an obvious bot. Like I, I really try to leave the door open for ongoing discussion when I can, um, which results in me spending way too much time on the internet and on Twitter, but it is what it is. But it's really interesting was like a lot of the people I got into like the biggest disputes with or who were like dunking on me or whatever, a lot of them I ended up meeting up with in, at the Bitcoin conference and then having like good conversations with. Um, I got a lot of hugs from people who we'd been going back and forth at. So that was really interesting to me. And I again, I think that people were really fired up about certain narratives that are just quite clearly like wrong. And, like, and, and I think they're, the fact that they don't talk about this topic anymore kind of proves the point. Like 
like there was a time when like a lot of people were like, oh, like Ukraine is equally as bad. Like for like two, three weeks, you, you, you heard a lot about this, but you don't hear about it anymore because because quite obviously it's not true. So, um, you know, I think circumstances on the ground change things, but that whole experience was amazing to me because like, look, we, I'd been in at least at least listening and part of Bitcoin Twitter, at least as a lurker for a long time and um, saw some crazy things happen. Trump getting elected president of the United States. Um, I saw um, the, the, all the COVID stuff, the pandemic, the lockdowns, uh, the Biden election, January 6th, all that stuff. I don't think I'd ever seen anyone as emotional as as they were during the first few weeks of the Ukraine-Russia um, war. So, so we'll see. Um, but I was kind of heartened by the fact that a lot of the people that that really like I tangled with um, over time were like, they wanted to just move on. And it's so interesting because Bitcoin's this thing that just like, it just kind of unites us. Like, I don't know, it's weird. Like, like I can literally go have a beer with someone over Bitcoin and I could probably disagree on like 80 to 90% of the other things they they like, but we can have a really fun conversation for three hours. It's just hard for me to imagine other things like that, right? Right. So I'm like quite heartened by that. And I want to, I want to keep that in mind as we go forward. That was a really cool thing that I saw happen out of a, what was otherwise like a bizarre experience. Two more brief questions, if I can. I just released a podcast today with Mandy Campbell from OKCoin OK and Sarah Satoshi from Ladies of Bitcoin, mm-hmm. both of whom mentioned you as a role model. So I'm curious to know who your role, role models are and what is the most important thing that you learned from them? Well, that's really nice to hear, and I hope I can live up to it. Um, I guess the key key one in Bitcoin is kill your heroes, and uh, <laughs> they're all going to disappoint you at some point. Um, I'll do my best. Uh, my role models. Well, in my book, I thanked a couple Bitcoiners who helped me understand that Bitcoin was a human rights struggle. So, I mean, I think that I could start there with Andreas Antonopoulos and Elizabeth Stark and Matt O'Dell and, and Jameson Lopp. And I think that uh, I'm very grateful for all the education, they, all the free education and content they put out there and, and what they did with their time and effort, especially at a time when, when Bitcoin was going through a, a very tough time. So I would say that, that, that they, they would be up there for me. Um, today, I mean, I, I, I just meet so many amazing people using Bitcoin in adversarial scenarios. And I, I think they're my, all my role models. I mean, people using Bitcoin in Gaza and Havana and Lugansk and just kind of proving this thing wrong, that it's, that it's too complicated for people to use outside the United States, or it's just only something for rich people to use. Like it's this kind of like bigotry of low expectations thing that people have. And they're just out there every day, proving it wrong. Like people out there, educators in in Pakistan, in Iran, in inner cities in the United States. So I think that, um, you know, those educators and translators and, and, and people who are there to be hands-on with folks are, are, are quite, uh, inspiring for me. Uh, I also would give a shout out to Jack Dorsey. I think that he's been great, um, for the space. I think he's in a tough position, especially during his days at Twitter. Uh, when I was interviewing him last year in Miami, obviously Lord Loomer came up to us and accused him of being the king of censorship and stuff like that. So man, that must've weighed pretty heavy on him. But, uh, I mean, I'm just amazed at what he's done over at, at block now, um, having all these Bitcoin companies and having this vision for the Bitcoin future is like pretty freaking amazing. So 
uh, would certainly name him as well. Well, I think you probably answered this question already, but my last question for you, Alex, is what gives you hope? Mm. Well, obviously Bitcoin gives me hope. Um, if uh, we didn't exist, it would be a tough, you know, it'd be tough. I mean, our chairman, Gary Kasparov, wrote this book, Winter is Coming. You know, I can't remember five, 10 years ago. I can't remember exactly when it was. He basically predicted what, what just happened, right? With regard to Putin. And um, it's dark, man. I mean, the human rights space is dark. Um, it's filled with horrible stories of trauma and suffering. And, um, you know, just this kind of like ongoing grind of governments using their people and just this so commonplace that it becomes banal almost to a point. Um, and, you know, we're getting closer into this, closer and closer and deeper and deeper into this electronic age. And dictators have figured out how to weaponize the internet and just use it to like, perpetrate more abuses. And I don't know, it would be kind of dark um, without something to fight back. So I think of Bitcoin kind of like a shield. Uh, it's it's like a shield. I guess it's kind of like that, uh, you know, maybe like a, an item that 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 Frodo and Sam had in, uh, in Mordor, like it's like something that um, that lights up at a time of uh, great darkness. Um, it's exactly what we need right now uh, in, in, in for, for humanity. And I'm amazed it exists. And I'm always blown away by what it enables people to do around the world every day. So whatever I can do to like advance it and just teach more people about it, um, sign me up. So thanks for having me on this show. I, I think what you're doing is important to try to reach out and dialogue with progressives. <laughs> I think that, again, it's like people can have constructs about how they think the world works, but then they're going to get mugged by reality, right? At some point, um, there was a good back and forth today, I think, between some um, anti-Bitcoin progressives. And, and one of them had said something like, um, who, who I, by the way, I respect on a lot of other matters. We just have this big disagreement about Bitcoin. But uh, I think they, they said something like uh, about how, how important cash was, which I, of course, I agree with. Um, and about how the monetary system is the, is the elevator and we need cash as like the stairs. And a friend of mine wrote back saying something like, no, no, no. Well, Bitcoin's the stairs, right? And, you know, like, I think this person was like, what a crazy answer, like crypto crazy person. Um, but that's, that's, that's the reality. Like your paper notes that you use as cash, those are going to get taken away from us. You'd be naive to think they aren't going to be like by the powers that be, they're going to take them away and all the privacy and freedom that goes with it. So that's the elevator. The thing is the cash is the elevator. So so what's going to happen when the elevator stops working? It's Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the digital cash that we're going to need. So I think a lot of progressives just get caught at that point. Like they don't understand that Bitcoin is the stairs. They don't think it is part of the architecture conversation at all. And eventually they'll get it that Bitcoin is the stairs. And, and it's not just the financial system that's the elevator, but it's, it's cash also. So we want this world where we have money that can't discriminate. It's accessible to all that's private, protects our privacy, all these things. We want to fight surveillance capitalism and control by corporations of all of our stuff. Fine. Well, you're going to need a good tool for that. And it's not going to be a sword. It's going to be a shield. It's going to be Bitcoin. So I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that you're pushing these conversations in this space. And I think it'll, it'll deliver good returns in terms of human impact over time. Much appreciated, Alex. Those words coming from you mean a lot. Thank you. Please tell the listeners where they can find you and your book. Sure. Um, my DMs are open. Come talk. I'm at Twitter at Gladstein. Uh, you can look at the work of the Human Rights Foundation at ahrif.org. 
The book is at cyfp.org. Check your financial privilege. You can also find it on Amazon. You can leave a review. That would be great. Um, Yeah, thanks for having me on. Absolutely, Alex. Thank you so much.